Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hey, friends. I'm Alicia. Thanks for coming in this week. We are in the mood for love. Stacy, you have kind of a different story for us this week. Yeah, I have a very untrashy story of the change but not dissolution of the marriage between actors Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman, two of, I mean, I just adore them both. And I love, I love their love story. Who do you have for us? You're taking us on a Gilded Age carriage ride. A little bit. People have been talking about the Gilded Age this week, so I figured we'd uh, dust off the most delightful story of Jenny Jerome Churchill, the first American to marry into the English aristocracy, and her three times down the aisle, one divorce, and trashy spider webs that surround her fascinating life. It's a great story. Like, she is a, it is a fascinating life. That's the best way to put it. Before we get to our episode, let's take out the magic mirror and give some big love and thanks to our newest Patreon supporters over there getting ad-free episodes and bonus content. Stacy, shout us out. Who joined us? Thank you so much for joining us. Bonnie J, Michelle I, Shannon S, Kristen D. Thank y'all so much for joining us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. Thanks so much to all the trash pandas for tuning in today. You ready to be in the mood for love, Stacy? Have a little fun. I think we should go, go, go. So, Stacy, you're taking us from De Niro to DeVito this week. I am, yeah. So, yeah, I covered Bobby De Niro last week. I happened to tune into a couple episodes of uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia this week and was reminded of the joy that is Danny DeVito. So I'm going to do something a little different today and highlight a Hollywood couple who had a spectacularly long marriage that technically endures. It was good enough that even though they've split up, they apparently plan to never formally divorce. So they're sitting in limbo, hmm. so to speak. So to speak. I'm still working on the theme song. I have my first <laughs> yeah. idea. So this is actors Rhea Perlman and Danny DeVito, two of the most charming people in the business, fixtures of the sitcom back in the heyday of the sitcom. These two dated for 11 years before they tied the knot in wow. 1982. And then Miracle of Hollywood Miracles, they spent the next 30 years as spouses. They broke up for a bit in 2012. But they got back together the following year. Four years on, they seem to have decided that being a couple really genuinely was not going to work for them. So they stopped being one, but they are still married, bound now in a friendship that has apparently deepened since they began living apart. Let's get into this, because in so many ways, these two were couple goals for decades, and maybe now they're uncouple goals too. Daniel Michael DeVito Jr. was born the 17th of November, 1944. Yeah, Scorpio, man. In, uh, in Neptune, New Jersey. He was the baby brother of two older sisters. And the trio grew up in nearby Asbury Park, where his dad owned some businesses. He was always short in stature, thanks to a genetic condition called Fairbanks disease, 
which uh, impedes the elongation of bones. So, you know, young Danny hit four foot ten, and that was it for him. There was some bullying. A kid yeah. in the fifties, like yeah. He, yeah, but he had a tight circle of friends in the neighborhood who, you know, they had each other's backs. He seems like an extremely upbeat, sunny person who does not carry a grudge. I think he still has a home in that area. I think he's still quite tight with people from his childhood. So anyway, uh, he did some acting in high school, but didn't initially follow that after graduating in 1962. I don't think he saw a future uh, in acting. Wasn't really sure what to do next. So one of his sisters who owned a salon said, come work for me as a hairdresser. Sure. 18-year-old Danny is like, what? Spend my days running my fingers through beautiful women's hair? Yes. So yeah, he went to work as a hairdresser in the early 60s. It's incredible. It's really... After about 18 months, he realized he could make more money if he also knew makeup, cosmetology. Oh, well, sure. Expand your skills, Danny. Come on. Also, more interface with beautiful women. I mean, this is like the whole thing. So he applied for a course at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts to study, I think, what we would now call cosmetology. I don't know if that term was in use at the time. In a real stroke of luck for both Danny and the world, at the time, applicants to the Academy had to perform a monologue regardless of what they were applying to study. His was very well received, and buoyed by the positive feedback he got, he decided to sign up for some acting classes, too. Triple threat DeVito, hair, makeup, Makeup, acting. This is amazing. So he graduated in 66, and then he went to do summer stock in Connecticut, where he met Michael Douglas, who is the same age, was also starting out in his career. These two became lifelong friends. They were roommates at one point in Los Angeles, and then they would appear together over and over again. Okay, so in 1971, he was cast in an off-Broadway production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This would pay off hugely for him just a few years later, but this is also where we're going to park Danny at the Trashy Divorces Depot and switch tracks. At the Cuckoo's Nest? Because in many ways, this was not the most important part that Danny DeVito played in 1971. Let us meet Rhea Jo Perlman, born in Coney Island on March 31st, 1948. She's the daughter of a doll parts factory manager, which sounds creepy as hell. Wow. And a bookkeeper. I'm not saying her father is creepy. He would later, No, just doll parts yes, factory manager. Boxes of arms. Have a definite vibo creep to it. Boxes of heads. Yeah. He would actually go on to have a bit part on Cheers. He was he was one of the barflies. And over the years, even was able to do some lines on the show. Oh, fantastic. And went on to have a whole second career as an actor later in his life. She and her sister grew up in Bensonhurst, and it was at a middle school talent show where she was bitten by the acting bug. She put together a little routine mimicking Ricky Ricardo, playing bongos and singing, and the <laughs> the crowd ate it up. And like, think about that. That was that was like current. That was new mm-hmm. television material at the time. Like just fascinating to consider. Okay. That whole experience made a big impression on her. And so acting was the life she wanted. It was her focus in college. She graduated in 1968 and then joined the ranks of young actors in New York, jostling for whatever parts she could convince a production to cast her in. 
This eventually landed her in a way off-Broadway production called Dracula Sabbath in <laughs> late 1970. And here we are pulling into the Trashy Divorces Depot to introduce our two young lovers, Rhea and Danny. Here's how they described their first encounter in a 1996 Rosie O'Donnell show interview. All of our sources are at TrashyDivorces.com. Rhea says, Danny was in this play off-Broadway called The Shrinking Bride, where he was playing a demented stable boy named Richie. Well, sure. So then Danny jumps in. It was the first scene of the play. I had a rake over my back. So he's like, kind of adopts like a scarecrow kind of posture, like his rake on his shoulders. My shirt was off, which meant a lot. You see, she came to see her girlfriend in the play and she was playing opposite me in the play. And I'm standing on the apron of the stage, leaning over like this with a little flex and I'm spitting over the apron of the stage, just big white gobs of spit. And her girlfriend, she says, what are you doing, Richie? And I say, I'm spitting on the swans. That was it. Rhea saw it, took one look at me, fell madly in love. (laughs) This does not actually seem to be a huge deviation from what did happen. Rhea told the New York Post in 2018 that after the performance, quote, I had to meet him immediately. I asked my friend if he had a girlfriend and she said no. They went out to dinner. She says, I came on to him big time. And like two weeks later, they were living together in oh my God. Danny's apartment in Manhattan. Sometimes when you know, you know. Yes. Take me out and take me home. Yes. So in 1975, Danny got his big break when One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was turned into a wildly successful movie. His old friend, Michael Douglas, was a producer on the film. And in 1978, he really established himself as a comic actor playing Louis De Palma, the conniving money-grubbing, tyrannical dispatcher of the Sunshine Cab Company on the sitcom Taxi. This is one of the, like, classic characters of television, just hands down. The show ran on ABC through May of 1982. It won a slew of awards, including an Emmy and a Golden Globe for Danny, and Rhea appeared in several episodes as Louis's kind-hearted girlfriend, Zena. What's funny is that the couple who were living together within weeks of meeting still had not bothered to walk down the aisle. His career finally flying high, they wed in January 1982 after 11 years together. In a 1983 profile of the couple in People magazine, writer Carol Wallace wrote, 11 years went by and impetuous types that they are, the two decided to make it official. It just hit us, says Rhea. The big day was January 28th, 1982. It's actually their anniversary weekend. Oh, happy anniversary! A Thursday. Happily uncoupled. Happily uncoupled. Anniversary to you. When the bride could not choose between, quote, a sweatsuit and an attractive t-shirt. Oh my. She settled for a rented antique wedding dress. The groom, meanwhile, rushed home during a taxi lunch break. The rain-soaked garden ceremony was performed by a French horn player with the Los Angeles Philharmonic who doubles as a licensed minister. Well, isn't that convenient? As for the wedding march, the happy couple chose a recording of Our Gang's Alfalfa trilling I'm in the Mood for Love. (laughs) Good potential theme song there. Marriage, says Danny, has not altered their relationship. After you've lived with somebody for 11 years, what's a guy in a robe reading from a book going to change? Rhea is quoted in the piece saying, Ours is not a fighting relationship. We both always feel terrible after even a small amount of harsh words. It's a cool piece, too. Danny goes on at length about they've got a baby at this point, and he's like, he's quipping, you know, the baby changes every day, so we change her like 30 times. (laughs) Talks about like taking her swimming in the pool and stuff. 
Uh, just seems like a very engaged dad. They're just super low-key, down-to-earth. Anyway. Wallace says that one secret to their longevity is that they are not competitive in their careers, which is a very good thing because ABC abruptly canceled Taxi a few months after they wed. And while NBC did pick it up, it only lasted for a season. Meanwhile, a little show called Cheers kicked off in the fall of 1982 with Rhea Perlman playing the sarcastic, feisty waitress Carla Tortelli, a role that netted her four Emmy Awards during the show's 11-year run. In fact, by the time it ended in 93, she had amassed more Emmy nominations and awards combined than anyone else in the cast. She was incredible. Another classic TV character. As a couple, they really did both portray... Oh, you'll never forget Carla. Two of the most memorable mm-hmm. roles in the history of television. So I find this fascinating because we have covered a lot of couples who've had this kind of inversion of success where, you know, the successful one's light kind of fades a little and the other eclipses them and it breaks the relationship. But that didn't happen here, partly because TV was not the only place where an actor can have a heralded career. Danny spent the 80s on the big screen we all remember, appearing in all kinds of memorable films like Terms of Endearment and then with his buddy Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner in Romancing the Stone and its sequel, Jewel of the Nile. In 1987, he had his first directorial outing in Throw Mama from the Train, classic. The next year, he co-starred with Arnold Schwarzenegger in Twins. And then he directed and co-starred with Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner again in 1989's War of the Roses. Like, Big movies, like big memorable movies. So things were quite good for these two at home and, you know, at the office, as it were. The pair had three kids during the 80s while also achieving all this big time success in Hollywood. In the 90s, aside from appearing together in 1996's instant classic Matilda, a movie oh, I love so much. Such a good movie. Danny turned his attention to producing films through his Jersey Films company. He talked to Barbara Ellen about it in a 2012 profile for The Guardian. Ellen writes, Producing-wise, DeVito proved he had good instincts when he bought Quentin Tarantino's script for Pulp Fiction, Sight Unseen. Quote, I hadn't seen Quentin direct or act. I hadn't even seen Reservoir Dogs when I bought his next project, which wasn't even written. Oh, wow. It was just about him. I liked the way he was talking about it. The guy was just so cool. It seemed simple to me. It was like when friends of mine said, You're going to make a movie called what? Aaron Brockovich? What the fuck is that? Nobody's going to see that movie. I said, it's the woman's name. What are you going to do? Change it? Uh, I pulled a fun Danny quote from that profile that I think, Alicia, you will relate to. He says, I don't think I've been bored ever. I've always been working on two or three things at a time, whether it was in the early days or whatever. I was always working on something. 100%. -hmm. I've never had a bored moment in... Mm -hmm. I had one bored moment as a child, (laughs) and my mom was like, oh, we can fix this. (laughs) So I learned very young never ever to say that I was bored because I would get a household project. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah, I fully understand that. Yeah. So that 2012 profile is extra interesting in hindsight because it appeared just a few months before Entertainment Tonight reported that Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman had separated. Mm. So the following passage reads a certain way when you know that's happening in the background. Ellen writes, and of course there's Perlman. They've been married since 1982 with two daughters and a son. Danny, quote, 
Yeah, Rhea and I have been together for like 100 years. Seriously, it's getting on for 40 years now. We didn't get married right away. We lived together and it was back and forth, in and out, on and off. She asks, are they soulmates? He says, oh yeah, that kind of thing. Good friends, best friends. We talk to each other every day. We Skype, all of it. He was in London uh, for a play during for this profile. Okay. So when the split was announced, though, it was a genuine shock. They were always just a low-key, fabulous couple who seemed to have found that thing everybody's looking for. So, of course, a website known for using anonymous sources that may or may not be made up published a piece quoting a source close to the family saying that Rhea had gotten tired of Danny's wandering eye. Allegations that their publicist since 1975, these are just extremely loyal people. Like, anyway, their publicist was quick to swat that down, saying whatever you may read is a fabrication. Nobody knows the real reason because they've not shared it with anyone. And that seems to be the situation even now. Like, they both acknowledge that they are not together, but they don't, they're not airing their dirty laundry in public. They're the classiest, trashiest, non-divorced people we've ever covered. Uh-huh. <laughs> So that same website would later quote another source after news of their reconciliation landed in 2013, saying that Michael Douglas finally sat his friend down and told him he needed to do everything he could to win Rhea back before it was too late. So grain of salt on that, but seems plausible. I mean, a friend a friend would sit a friend down and be like, dude, you're being an idiot. Have you seen the dating market out there, man? <laughs> stay, stay where you are. So they were back on for a few more years, but they did break up, but did not divorce in 2017. In 2018, Rhea talked about how things were with Danny to the New York Post while she was appearing in a production of Good for Auto in New York. Quote, we've been together for a very long time, so there's a lot of love and history. We agree on enough things, so why ruin that with the yucky things that come with a divorce? Wow. Yeah. In 2019, she appeared on Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen and had this to say to a fan who called in and asked why she and Danny had such an easy time being friends when so many Hollywood couples struggle. She said, I don't know why it's difficult for other people, but Danny and I have always loved each other and we have three amazing children together. We really agree on almost everything important. She continued, you know, we were together for 40 years. 40 years is a long time. You might have to do something else. So Andy Cohen asked her how often they're in touch, and she said a lot. We talked today. As for how their relationship fares now, as opposed to when they were, you know, a married, living together couple, Perlman said it was much better because all the tense stuff is gone. It's not in his face or in mine. She says it was a hard transition. You know, they have three kids, obviously. Sure. But everything smoothed out. Everybody's got a good relationship with Danny and with me and each other. That's all we care about. But no, I'm not getting divorced. No, 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 no. What for? We do live separately. We see each other a lot, too. Now, the best thing about this interview is that she is sitting next to Whoopi Goldberg. And you can see on Whoopi's face that she has no idea that this, like, royal couple of Hollywood split up. She's <laughs> she shocked. Brand new, new information. information. So she's floored. It just flew under her radar somehow. And finally, she just leans over and is like, well... Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, it's unusual to see uh, Whoopi Goldberg um, tongue-tied, you know. So that is the remarkable and ongoing and changing love story of Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman. No trash cans, all halos for 
that remarkable and mature relationship. Good, I'm in the mood for love. Good for you. And absolutely not divorce. You've never told a story like that before on Trashy no, Divorces. No, I tend to like them grimy, but this one's not <laughs> not grimy at all. Nope. Well done, Stacy. Thanks. Let's take a moment, keep our bar seats warm here at Sam's Bar, take a quick break. <laughs> sure. And I'm coming back with a tale of a Gilded Age badass. Awesome. See you on the flip. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so we took a break and we did settle on a song. We're definitely going with I'm in the mood for love, right? I'm in the mood for love. I love this character that we're going to talk about, this real life character. Yes. Like one of the most fascinating women of the last generations. Also, y'all are super into the Gilded Age on HBO right now. Everybody seems to be in the mood for love with that. Y'all have reached out like, Alicia, are you going to cover any of these people. And guess what? We have. Done and Done actually just covered Caroline Shermerhorn Aster. Mm -hmm. We just talked about Alva Vanderbilt. Right. This is your other podcast. Over on our Patreon page for Trashy Divorces, we did like three months of Gilded Age princesses mm -hmm. back in the beginning part of 2021. We've done them all. 
So what I'm doing today is dusting off one of my very favorite stories. It's a good one. And today I'm bringing you the life tale extravaganza of Jenny Jerome Churchill. Are you ready? Yes. Jenny Jerome was born in Brooklyn in 1854. She's the second of four daughters. There's Clarita, Clara, Jeanette, Jenny, Leonie, and Camille. Uh, Camille died at eight. So the three surviving Jerome sisters were known popularly as the good, the witty, and the beautiful. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. The good was Clara, the witty was Leonie, and the beautiful was Jenny. Jenny's dad, his name is Leonard Jerome. Leonard Jerome, born on a farm, he's the second of 10 kids. So although his background is very modest, Leonard likes money. And he's got this dream, and his dream is to be a Wall Street speculator. So the key to Leonard's success, and sometimes losses, was that he is not afraid of risk or unpredictability. Now, he'll have several periods in his life when his speculating and business ventures don't quite work out like he wants them to. And because of this, the family's financial situation sort of ebbs and flows along with his success. Makes sense. However, Leonard is filled with drive, energy, and persistence. And all of those qualities will get passed on to his daughter. And Jenny will pass those on to her son, Winston. You might have heard of him. Think he had something to do with England. The Jeromes and this line does not need a guarantee of victory in their pursuits, but they always believe themselves strong enough to take the risk. That's their crest, right? So Jenny's mother, Clarissa, who is called Clara, is from a wealthy family and is greatly concerned about social status. Clara gets that Leonard's money is not going to buy them a place in society, but without that proper place in society, it is unlikely that her daughters are going to make good marriages mm -hmm. to attain a place in society, sure. right? So by the early 1860s, Leonard is worth $10 million. Wow. He's called the King of Wall Street. Yeah. Big deal. So the family moves from Brooklyn to an extravagant mansion in Manhattan on Madison Avenue and 26th Street. The Jerome Mansion was so full of excesses, it had an opera house inside the home that could hold 600 people. Good Lord. We were just going to have the opera over tonight. You want to come? When the Jeromes moved in, they threw themselves an ostentatious housewarming party to, you know, announce their arrival on the scene, mm -hmm. also flaunt their wealth. This party is famous because it has two flowing fountains. One, full of champagne. Totally makes sense. The other is full of, I don't even want to be at this party, eau de cologne, like perfume. So you could just... Yeah, that's excessive. All sounds great, but Leonard Jerome is not free of personal scandal. It is rumored that he has an illegitimate daughter named Minnie Hawk by his opera singer mistress. It helps to have an opera sure house does. in the home. Wow. Okay, if you look at pictures of Minnie Hawk and Jenny Jerome, it is reasonable to think that they may have been related, but Minnie Hawk is described as so like Jenny, but less good looking. So Clara desperately wants to break into old money society. But the Knickerbocker establishment families are determined. 
not just for her. It's nothing personal, Clara. Like, nobody's getting in. Caroline Astor's having none of that. I got 400 people in my 400 and there's no more room on the list. Sorry. And this is how inbreeding happens over the generations. Well, the Jerome's never going to be accepted. Mm -hmm. And they're also nouveau riche and audacious. There's another complication as it comes to Clara, because the rumor about Clara is she has Native American blood, which is scandalous. Whatever. The claim was never substantiated, but the rumor gets around like enough. only her? Well, the rumor gets around enough that it makes her Jerome girls unmarriageable in polite society. Okay. I, yeah. Yeah. The Gilded Age was not Sucked. good, y'all. It's it not sucked. golden. It's terrible. Yeah. So in 1867, realizing that Clara is not going to be able to break into New York society and her daughters are not going to have success there, we got a new plan. Guess what the new plan is? We're going to Paris. Yeah. 1867. Going to Europe. Going to Europe. Clara's going to take her three daughters, the good, the witty, and the beautiful, to Paris to launch them into society. Mm -hmm. Now, this connects directly with with stories you have just told on Patreon with our trashy Bonapartes. Because guess where they're landing in 1867 in Paris? The court of... Napoleon III. Okay. And Empress Eugenie, which is far more welcoming than New York. Eugenie does not care where you get your money as long as you are willing to spend it Mm -hmm. in her French court. Sure. Now, we've talked about this a little bit, but let me give you a little fun, few fun bits on Empress Eugenie of France. Eugenie is a beautiful Spanish countess who married Napoleon III in 1853. She is the last empress consort of France. Empress Eugenie plays major roles, not only in the world's politics, but also in fashion. Eugenie is the one who introduces the cage crinoline worn under skirts in 1855. So she started hoop skirts. European fashion follows her lead. Now, Empress Eugenie, not messing around. She is new and novel and wants all the coolest, all the latest, all the adornments, all the baubles, all the gowns. So if you are into the Gilded Age, you know about the father of haute couture, Charles Frederick Worth, and his famous gowns. We're going to talk about him in just a second. For Eugenie, even the most expensive of her gowns were altered, added to, or embellished in some way by her after they were custom made for her. She's got great artistic and creative abilities. She loves fashion. Empress Eugenie becomes the legit trendsetter for fashion worldwide. Also, we've heard of dollar princesses, American dollar princesses. Mm -hmm. Empress Eugenie is the one who starts this whole thing. So in addition to her influence and importance in the fashion world, Eugenie plays a really tremendously important role for American heiresses. Paris, the center of arts, culture, fashion. And Eugenie is in charge of all of them. So her jam is to welcome in these nouveau riche Americans and give them the social acceptance and standing that they were denied in New York. Empress Eugenie becomes a gateway for many families Mm -hmm. in her court, like the Jeromes, 
like the Kreider triplets. It all comes together. This is so much in the background of all of this Gilded Age stuff. Yeah. A little bit of matchmaking between wealthy Americans and titled Europeans. Is yeah, you can idea. buy your way into society here if you have enough mm-hmm. money. And Empress Eugenie's court are perfect training grounds for rich American girls whose mothers are thoroughly desperate for them to marry into an aristocratic entitled family. Mm-hmm. You're going to learn court play and manners and what it's like. And, oh, here's a great prime opportunity to meet whoever you want. But the thing with Empress Eugenie, everyone always had to be dressed spectacularly. You could never wear the same outfit twice. So if you were in her court, you have to have the money to spend in order to be able just to, like, yeah, for the price of getting in, you yeah. need a new dress. This is not a problem for wealthy Americans. Dressing to impress becomes a necessity as well as an art form. So the Jerome girls, good, witty, beautiful, are a big hit in Paris. So here, Jenny Jerome shows up 12 years old, and she's going to meet other American girls in Paris in the same situation. So here at the Parisian court, they're exposed to decadence and style and flirtations and loose morals. And the Jerome family will thrive in Paris until that pesky Franco-Prussian war Mm. forces them to move to England. So all during their life, all three Jerome girls were told how clever and special and talented and beautiful they were. And they believed it. These things are all especially true of Jenny, who was, in addition to her other vast qualities, witty and a very accomplished pianist. Jenny also is stacked. (laughs) She's really curvy and she has a voluptuous figure. So it's not just her parents that think that Jenny is fantastic and unique and wonderful. Oscar Wilde, no less, will call Jenny beautiful and brilliant. (laughs) She's beautiful, intelligent. She's well-educated. She's just vivacious. She's got confidence. Gosh. Before we move on to marriage number one, I do want to mention Charles Frederick Worth here. The father of Haute Couture, he'll found the House of Worth, which dominates Parisian fashion from the late 1800s to the early 1900s. I've dropped an episode about Charles Frederick Worth on the bit.ly trash candy link. Just for an example here of how outlandish and amazing the parents of Jenny Jerome, as well as Consuelo Isnaga, would spend about $20,000 on dresses for each daughter for each season. Hmm. This is $440,000 in today's money. Charles Frederick Worth, big deal. The Victorian Albert Museum does have a large archive of Worth dresses. We talked about Alice Vanderbilt's costume. She came in her electric light dress to Alva Vanderbilt's famous costume ball in 1883. Anyway, spiderwebs. Okay. I love it. Back to Jenny. She makes her debut in London in 1872. On August 12, 1873, Jenny will attend a ball for the Prince and Princess of Wales. At this time, this is Bertie and Princess Alexandra. This party happens on the Isle of Wight. And will change the course of history. It is where a 19-year-old Jenny will meet a 24-year-old Lord Randolph Churchill. These two, of course, would go on to produce their son, Winston Mm -hmm. Churchill, who would lead England through World War II and be instrumental in defeating 
Adolf Hitler. The attraction between Randy and Jenny, whoa, powerful and immediate. Randolph Churchill says he's in love after one dance. Hmm. He'll propose three days later. Oh. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to uh, Lord Randolph Churchill, he was born February 13th, 1849. He's the third son, second surviving son of the seventh Duke of Marlborough and his overbearing mother, Frances, Duchess of Marlborough. Lord Randolph is raised at Blenheim Palace and being the second son of a duke, that pesky little thing oh, called right. primogeniture, dictates that he is not going to inherit the title or the wealth that his older brother would. Mm-hmm. As the younger son, the title of Lord is only a courtesy title. And technically, I mean, he's a commoner Mm -hmm. and would eventually be elected to the House of Commons in Parliament. Now, Randolph is a heavy drinker. He likes carousing. Like many younger sons that we have seen throughout time, he sometimes lacks purpose and direction. He's not considered very handsome but it is agreed upon by all that he is very charming. Randolph proposes to Jenny three days after their meeting, and she accepts. But both sets of parents? Not quite as accepting. Hmm. The Duke and Duchess of Marlborough are not in favor of this match because here is this unknown American girl from a really dubious family, and Jenny's parents are not happy because while coming from a prominent aristocratic family, Randolph is not inheriting any title or wealth, which does not make him any kind of grand prize. Right. But these two are in the mood for love. So they're forbidden to marry. But good old Bertie, the Prince of Wales, swoops in Uh and puts his approval on it. Now I need to tell you about Bertie, Prince of Wales, who is completely obsessed with Jenny Jerome as well as her friend Consuelo Isnaga. Bertie loves Jenny so much, he not only approves the marriage, talks to the parents, they have gained approval. There is a stipulation, though. And the stipulation for the marriage going through is that Randolph has to run for a seat in Parliament. Okay. So this is how Randolph gets to Parliament. He does run. He's elected in February 1874. Okay, as the two lovebirds are preparing for their marriage and all the details are being agreed upon, there are a lot of love letters. And Randolph writes these uh, sappy love letters that are very passionate. Jenny's letters are less overtly loving, but still affectionate. While expressing her affection, Jenny still asserts her independence and confidence. It's my favorite in one letter. She said, I won't marry you unless you let me do exactly as I like. (laughs) Good for her. So Dad Leonard initially refuses to pay a dowry because he's against the concept in general and because Randolph is not a firstborn son, which makes him undeserving of the beautiful Jenny in Leonard's eyes. The Duke and Duchess of Marlborough insisting on a dowry, and it was, in fact, British law. So he will pay $50,000, which is a pretty modest sum compared to his own wealth. That's the price tag he's putting on it. He's like, this match isn't any more prestigious to be worth any more than 50K. I'm out. On April 15th, 1874, Randolph and Jenny marry at the British Embassy in Paris. And now Jenny Jerome is Lady Churchill. Jenny Jerome is the first American to marry into the English aristocracy. Hmm. The Knickerbocker women back home, oh, devastated. Interesting. 
This is what shakes it up for everybody sitting back in Knickerbocker Gilded Age. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. We never thought about landing. Yeah. We didn't know you could land an aristocratic title. Yeah, we thought we could control who was prominent. and So now New York society has no choice but to accept and welcome in the Jerome family. Right. Jenny is Lady Churchill. Clara, game, set, match for mom, right? Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill was born seven months after the wedding <laughs> at Blenheim Palace on November 30th, 1874. Sure, he was just a bit of a preemie. As was the custom of the time, it was announced that Jenny delivered her son prematurely. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh. However, upon birth, Winston was robust and healthy, with no indications of being premature. Oh, that's funny. When asked much later in life about the timing of his birth, Winston Churchill would humorously say, Although present on the occasion, I have no clear recollection of the events leading up to it. <laughs> Think from this, it will quickly become obvious that Winston inherits his mother's character, charisma, and fortitude. All right. So the Churchill's early marital years were a blur of balls and operas and galas and regattas and hunts and other social entanglements. Lady Churchill, Jenny, is a society favorite. She's got glamorous looks and this American sensibility, which makes her a very popular hostess as well as guest. She's one of the only high society ladies with a tattoo. Hmm. Jenny has a tattoo of a snake coiled around her left wrist. Interesting. Mm -hmm. In addition to her tattoo, which makes her kind of sexy in the uh, upper crust set, she has got va-va-voom, enormous sex appeal. Like animal-like magnetism. I'm in the mood for love. So one of her admirers and possible lovers, Edgar Vincent Viscount de Abernon, once described her as more panther than woman. She was sexually liberated, and Jenny liked the effect that she had on men. So over the course of her life, Jenny would take on a number of lovers. Some accounts claim as many as 200. Her nickname privately is Lady Randy. Mm -hmm. There is a second son, John, called Jack, who was born in February 1880, some people say that Jack's actual father was Evelyn Boscowen, the seventh Viscount Falmouth, but this has never been substantiated. Jenny's a good wife. Throughout their marriage, Jenny campaigns tirelessly for Randolph's political career. She's an asset to him. Now, Randolph is an active but kind of controversial political figure. He will coin the term Tory democracy referring to his policy of progressive conservatism. His political career will include being a member of parliament, the chancellor of the exchequer, the leader of the House of Commons, and the secretary of state for India. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are big roles. Well, Jenny, let's talk about what she does. One of her most impressive accomplishments was founding the Primrose League in 1883. The Primrose League was a group that brought a social element to politics. While the Primrose League is primarily a social club, they do have significant influence. So they have balls and teas and dinner parties, cycling clubs, and it's not exclusively female. 
but it will encourage women to join and participate in politics. The Primrose League is not dissolved until 2004. Hmm. That's how long it stays around. Kind of an early activist, Jenny Jerome. Now, Jenny may have a contentious relationship with Randolph's mother. The Duchess of Marlborough does not like Jenny, and Jenny does not like her. And this relationship will remain contentious throughout Jenny's life. Bit frosty. Jenny said that her mother-in-law thought of American girls as, not my words, this is a quote, an exotic mix of a red Indian and a gaiety girl. Hmm. Unquote. It is also known that the Duchess of Marlborough and eventual Dower Duchess disapproved of Jenny's extravagant spending. So the financial problems of the Churchills would be a lasting issue and will follow Jenny even after Randolph's death. These two like to spend cash and they spend far more freely than their income supported. They're often in debt. They often borrow money from friends and relatives. So some problems. None of these things, though, including motherhood, will dull Jenny's sparkle. Now, Jenny's kind of a hands-off mom, which is not uncommon for women of her class and time. The kids are sent to the nursery. They're raised by their nanny. The Churchill's nanny is Elizabeth Everest, to whom both boys will remain devoted to for the rest of their lives. By the early 1880s, Jenny and Randolph's marriage was strained. Their financial troubles, physical separations due to travels, as well as multiple extramarital affairs all contribute to their estrangement. Also, let's add that Randolph's behavior was also becoming more erratic and crueler. Hmm. Now, Jenny, still vibrant, glamorous, the object of men's affections, Consuelo Vanderbilt writes of Jenny in her autobiography called The Glitter and the Gold, she was still, in middle age, the mistress of many hearts, and the Prince of Wales, Bertie, later Edward VII, was known to delight in her company. Her gray eyes sparkled with the joy of living, and when it was often the case, her anecdotes were risque, and it was with her eyes as well as her words that one could read the implications. She was an accomplished pianist, an intelligent and well-informed reader, and an enthusiastic advocate of any novelty. Hmm. So the Churchills, living very separate lives, and Seba, Jenny's biographer, will speculate that Randolph maybe possibly was gay, using the fact that his companions were always men, and he preferred to travel and be in the company of men. As Randolph continues to be neglectful, though, and verbally abusive and unstable, nobody really blames Jenny. Then or now for being unfaithful. Right. And Seba will say of Jenny during this time, she was highly sexed and she needed the physical reality of having a man that adored her and adored her body, not just her mind. Am I correct, though, in thinking that her other relationships helped her husband's political career? Like there was a sort of alliance building. Is that part of what was going on here? 100%. How about this one? Uh, so Jenny has numerous notable lovers, including Count Charles Kinski, an Austrian diplomat, who some close to her felt was the love of her life. Jenny also has an affair with Bertie, the Prince of Wales. Mm-hmm. She calls him Tum Tum. That's his nickname. Tum Tum. The King of England. Yes. Well, Tum Tum, come to my weekend party. 
Uh, let's see. Also among her conquests, uh, Lord Wolverton, Lord Astor, American politician William Bork Cochran, lots of lovers. And although Jenny was clearly not faithful to her husband, she was loyal to him and his career. So to your point, yes, Jenny is key to his political success. She networks. <laughs> she campaigns for him. <laughs> We're calling it networking. Her personality and charisma exceed her husband, like, off the charts. Right. Especially as his behavior continues to spiral downward, Jenny's really instrumental and tireless in working for his success. So it is understandably a shock to her when Randolph suddenly resigns without warning or telling her. Like, resigns from Parliament? Yeah. Oh, he's done. He's out. Whew. Need a little vacay? Randolph cruelly allows Jenny to find out by her reading it in the newspaper. She oh just goes God. to get her coffee in the morning, and he will watch her read that news across from her. Okay. And when the shock showed on her face, he said, well, it must be a surprise for you, isn't it? By this time, it is clear that Randolph has some sort of mental and medical problem causing his issues. So after resigning from government, he comes clean to Jenny about his illness. Randolph has been suffering from what they politely called general paralysis of the insane. You should translate that to syphilis. Yes. The end of Randolph's life really, truly was terrible for him. And it is Jenny. Terrible for her, too, but she remains loyal and dedicated. So Randolph will have violent rages. He can't swallow properly. He'll lurch around like he's drunk. He'll lose his ability to speak. He'd go in and out of dementia. He often needs to be restrained. Syphilis is a terrible end. Yeah. Randolph has one last wish, though, and that's to go on a last trip. And Jenny decides to do this with him, for him, as well as to preserve the future for both of her sons. Like, whoa, this is how their dad is going out. I still have two kids that need to be raised within the construct of this world. Ginny and Randolph will board a cruise ship. They have a straight jacket with them when they go. Just, just in case. Yeah, to contain him and his violent rages. As well as another handy thing they brought on the boat, a lead-lined coffin. Because no one expects Randolph to come right, back alive not. from the cruise. It was, was it lead-lined because they were going to just sink it? <laughs> were they going to bury him? <laughs> I, I don't know where he's going to die on the water. We got to keep him preserved for a while if we're in the middle of the ocean. Was he radioactive? <laughs> <laughs> you can put the worry out of your mind. The lead line coffin was not needed. Okay. Remarkably, Randolph makes it home. Wow. <laughs> they return to London in late 1894, but only a month later, Randolph will die at the age of 45. Wow. Now, everyone through this time respects the way that Jenny nurses and cares for her husband right up into his death. Mm -hmm. Here's what's kind of remarkable. After Randolph's death, there's a member of parliament that comes to the home to get Randolph's robes, and Jenny refuses to give them back, huh. saying that she's saving them for her son. Well, I see certain things were already being planned, being plotted. Jenny has some choices. She's got to make some decisions. What is she going to do with the rest of her life? So the first and most important change Jenny makes is to improve the relationship with and her involvement in her boys' lives. So throughout their childhood, Jenny kind of distant and uninvolved. Mm -hmm. 
They'd been raised by their nanny, sent to boarding schools. They don't see their parents that often. But after Randolph's death, now both boys are older, Jenny becomes more involved in both of her son's lives. She becomes a strong and guiding force for Winston, especially when it comes to him thinking about his future. So just like Leonard, her father, believed in her, Jenny believes in Winston and just this unwavering belief and instills in Winston that he has a destiny to lead. Mm -hmm. This is your job. And she'll get increasingly more ambitious for his career, seemingly to pour all of her frustrations and disappointments about her husband's political career onto her son. There's some Imago for you. From this point forward, though, Jenny remains devoted to both of her sons, but Winston becomes the most important man in Jenny's life. Now, Jenny, she knows the rules. She'll observe a short period of customary mourning and then gets back to being Jenny Jerome. (laughs) She goes to parties. She mingles. She flirts. She'll do some charity work, as was expected of widows of her class. In 1899, Jenny becomes very involved in fundraising for the Second Boer War in South Africa, where both of her sons were serving. She was instrumental in raising the necessary funds to buy and supply the needs for a hospital ship. Once completed, the ship named the Maine, and Jenny shocked high society when she accompanied the ship to South Africa and served as a hospital administrator during the war. Wow. In 1902, Jenny will be awarded the Red Cross by her old friend and lover, the former Prince of Wales and now King Mm. Edward VII. Tom Tom. Tom Tom. Now, Jenny was sincerely concerned with the war effort, especially with her son serving there, but she had another motive in heading to South Africa because Jenny, in the style of Jenny Jerome, had begun a romance with a young member of the Scots Guard, Hmm. George Cornwallis West, in 1897. It's kind of fun. See, Jenny had been friends with George's mother for like 20 years. And she's known George since, you know, he's been a kid. Oh, my God. Well, Jenny's 20 years older than George. And George is just a few weeks older than Winston. Oh, my God. So, obviously, this is fine and not at all scandalous. Right. (laughs) It's so scandalous. (laughs) Also, during this time, Jenny shows some of her spunk and uh, ingenuity by taking on a new venture. So as had been the case ever since marrying Randolph, Jenny had worries about money. She's always worried about money. Also, never been bored a day in her life. She needs something to satisfy her intellectual curiosity as well as political interest. So in 1899, Jenny will found and edit the Anglo-Saxon Review, which is a quarterly journal including articles on a variety of subjects by a variety of prominent authors. It was elaborately and beautifully designed. It's not a financial success and will stop after 10 issues, but it is not quite the feminist of the Ladies' Almanac with Natalie Barnet and Romaine Brooks, but kind of similar to that. We're going to make a, we're going to make a thing. Okay. Okay. It is on July 28th, 1900 that the 46 year old, Jenny Jerome Churchill will marry the 26-year-old George Cornwallis West. Do we have any comment from his mother? (laughs) (laughs) No one approves of the marriage. (laughs) 
Now, even Birdie, Tum Tum, the king, her longtime lover ally friend, is horrified by this match. And they actually fall out of touch for a time because of it. Hmm. Now, George Cornwallis West has no money. And by the time Leonard Jerome had died, he left Clara with not much extra money that she could send to Jenny. So the financial tensions immediately with Jenny and George are strained. Jenny throws herself into Winston's political career campaigning and championing for him in the same way she'd done for his father. Jenny would also serve as Winston's political hostess until he married Clementine in 1908. So in order to earn some uh, spare cash, Jenny will return to writing during this time. She'll try her hand as a playwright. She'll write a play called His Borrowed Plumes in 1908, which was produced at the Haymarket Theater. She will write another play in 1913 called The Bill. Both plays were financial failures. It perhaps is unsurprising that her marriage to George Cornwallis West also failed. What made it more insulting to her writing failure injury, though, was that George left her, yikes, for the lead actress in her play, oh, no. His Borrowed Plumes. Oh, my God. This lady's name is Mrs. Patrick Campbell. Jenny files for divorce, claiming George had denied her conjugal rights. The divorce is final in July 1914. So Jenny, Jerome, the story's <laughs> about Jenny, does not find what she's looking for as a playwright, but she will find great success as a memoirist. Her book, The Reminiscences of Lady Randolph Churchill, was published in 1908 and is a critical and financial success. Jenny's collection of essays called Short Talks on Big Subjects in 1916. That's a great title. Yeah, was also a success. So Jenny, now getting a little older, her looks are fading. The world is changing quickly. In 1914, when World War I begins, Jenny keeps herself busy, makes herself useful translating French documents for the British government. Jenny will also write about the war in the London Daily Chronicle. But during and after World War I, Jenny Jerome, still Jenny Jerome, she's going to parties, doing charity work, socializing. At a wedding that she'll attend in Rome in 1913, she will meet the much younger Montague Fippin Porch. Montague Porch is a British colonial officer serving in Africa. Jenny is 59. Montague Porch is 36 at the time of their meeting. Hmm. And Montague Porch falls in love with Jenny, and she does not discourage his attention sure. or advances. Hey, it's a Fippin Porch. <laughs> Jenny's lonely, and although she keeps up her active social life, she had become far more self-pitying quite melancholy after her divorce from George Cornwallis West. So when <laughs> Montague Fippenporch was on leave from Nigeria, he and Jenny spend a great deal of time together. But alas, he's not the only younger man that Jenny's spending time with. Jenny doesn't like being alone. So in the spring of 1918, Montague Porch proposes to Jenny and she accepts. And their engagement is a bit of a shock to the family. He is three years younger than Winston Churchill at this time. However, both of Jenny's sons and her daughter-in-law, Clemmy, even Randolph's younger sister, were all happy for her and attended the wedding June 1st, 1918. Hmm. 
They could see that Jenny was happier and livelier than she'd been in a long time. They welcomed her happiness. At the time of her third walk down the aisle, Jenny is 64. Her groom is 41. Jeez. When questioned about the couple's age difference, God, I love Jenny Jerome. She'll famously reply, he has a future and I have a past, so we should be all right. <laughs> That's great. Jenny will not change her name this time and would be known as Lady Randolph Churchill for the rest of her life. And reportedly, Jenny and Montague are happy together. Jenny enjoys traveling, spending time with her grandkids, all the things that she'd done her whole life. Montague Porch was away in Africa a lot, you know, working, but the two remain in close contact and correspond often. It is in June of 1921 when Jenny was visiting her friend Lady Frances Horner at the Mel's Manor House in Somerset, where Jenny had just come back from a trip to Italy and she's wearing these new high-heeled Italian slippers and she slips and falls down a staircase. Yikes. A doctor is called mm -hmm. and the doctor diagnoses that Jenny had broken her left ankle However, within a short period of time, gangrene had set in. A surgeon was called and he decided that that leg needed to be amputated. Oh my God. Jenny takes the news calmly and with a positive attitude. After the amputation, Jenny seems to be recovering well. She's cheerful. She sees visitors. She's getting letters and well wishes from family and friends. June 29th, Jenny will wake up in good spirits, eat a good breakfast. And without any warning then, Jenny begins to bleed profusely and will yell, nurse, nurse, I'm feeling faint. Jenny goes unconscious. The main artery in the amputated leg had hemorrhaged. Jenny will slip into a coma and die at the age of 67 years old. <sighs> Jenny Jerome Churchill is buried next to her first husband, Lord Randolph Churchill, in the Churchill family plot at St. Martin's Church in Oxfordshire. And honestly, Jenny's most lasting impact on history is through her belief in her son, Winston Churchill. Her uh, instilling the unfailing will and perseverance. And you got this, Winston. It's yours. This is, this is yours to do. Although Jenny will not live to see him become prime minister, Jenny never doubts it's going to happen. In a letter of encouragement, to Winston in 1915, when Winston's serving on the Western Front, Jenny will remind him, I am a great believer in your star. I love that. So nice. Oh my gosh. I don't know how many trash cans Jenny Jerome gets, but they're all gilded for sure. <laughs> like, I mean, I love how you kept saying that she was a unfailingly loyal wife with all of these <laughs> hundreds of lovers. <laughs> King Tum Tum. Come on. That uh, is Jenny Jerome Churchill. I am a great believer in her star. She's a mm. fascinating Jenny Jerome. Don't care. I I'm going to do what I'm going to do. It's a fascinating era too. I think we tend to, we talked about this with Queen Victoria as well. We tend to think that people were, well-behaved and more moral or oh whatever God, no. back then, or even restrained in their proclivities. And they, that has never happened. There has never been a time. People have been the same since the beginning of time. We are no more evolved. We are no less evolved. <laughs> no, 
We are just trashy is what we are. So I'll just try yeah. not to kill each other in all of our trashiness. Holy cats. That is the extended version of your Gilded Age trashy divorces. I'm in the mood for love for the week. Y'all, if you liked Bobo Rockefeller this past week on Trashy Breakups, Done and Done Tomorrow is the episode you definitely don't want to miss if you need a Monday podcast. If you're looking for the other side of the standard oil fortune, if you're a Taylor Swift person, you'll like that story as well. Oh, on Love Letters 2 this week. I may have told a story. Your finale on Friday. The first time I ever made sauerkraut. It was so good. It was a great story. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and joining us this week. We'll be back this Wednesday Mm -hmm. with a new Trashy Breakups. Yep. And until we meet again, Trash Pandas, keep your hands clean. Scrub those hands. But always keep the hearts trashy. Always, always. Have a tremendous week, y'all. Big cheers. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's sydneyvsmith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.